0: Paul is the founder of Caring for Ex-Offenders, which is an organisation that take care of people once they're released from prison and help them to reintegrate back into society. And what we find is that when somebody is released from prison and is um, part of a, a course like Caring for Ex-Offenders, the reoffending rate drops off quite drastically and so um, we're so proud to be involved in Caring for Ex-Offenders. In 2015 Paul was awarded an MBE for his work with Ex-Offenders. As well as all of those amazing things. Paul and Amanda are great friends to me and Liz. We went out for dinner at Carluccio's last night and had a great time listening to um, these guys and sharing stories of all that they're doing. Amanda was the person who persuaded Liz to go out with me 10 years ago. Liz was saying, no, no, no. And Amanda said, I'll just give it a go. And here we are 10 years later. So Amanda is to blame for that. But also, I hope it's okay to mention, Amanda has been uh, writing Paul's biography over the last four years and um, Hodder will be publishing uh, Paul's biography and um, early next year that uh, story will be released and we just can't wait because Paul has the most amazing story and we're so excited about him sharing some of that with us now, so please give a really warm welcome to Paul Cowley.
1: Thank you, Alex, Liz. Goodness me, me and Amanda, um, we came here When did we come here? We came here um, about two and a half years ago, and we came to the site in the city where you go up the stairs, and the room was there, and there was some pizzas and stuff, and uh, goodness me, you've got three churches now. What have you guys been on? I mean, extraordinary, three churches in the city. I mean, that is extraordinary uh, growth. Um, And the team, and they were telling us some stuff last night about what you've been doing. And like I said, extraordinary growth. And the scriptures say that if you seek first the kingdom of God, then all the other things that we need will be given to us. The scriptures go on to say that God knows what we need and where we are. And I wanted just to share um, a a little bit into that about the kingdom of God, but mostly about you and us and our relationship with him. There's two scriptures. Um, that will come up on the screen behind me and I'll paraphrase them for time. One is in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, verse 11 and 12, really, where it says that God has a good and perfect plan, a plan to prosper us and not to harm us, a plan to give us hope and a future. And if we seek Him earnestly, if we want Him in our lives, if we pray to Him, the scripture goes on to say, then I will answer you and I will come to you and I will tell you what I've got in store for you. The other one is in the letters. It's in Romans, a bit near the end of the Bible, Romans 5, verses 1 to 6. And again, I'll paraphrase it. Basically, what it's saying, that we are now ambassadors for God, now that we're in Christ, or we're on a journey towards Christ. And it says in that, through our sufferings, we develop perseverance. Through perseverance, we develop character. And once our character is formed or reformed, Then we have hope, and it goes on to say that that hope is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And really importantly, it says that that is a hope that does not disappoint, because it's given by God, and that's the big deal in that. And in those readings, I really see three things. I don't know what you see in it, but I see that God has a plan uh, for our lives, a good and perfect plan, it goes on to say. Then I think it also says that it's going to be a bit bumpy. There's going to be a struggle developing perseverance and developing our character and shaping us and reforming us. It's not going to be easy. So we're warned about that. And most of all, I think it says in both of them that he loves us, earnestly loves us, and wants us to be the best we can possibly be. The readings are great. And I love them, that's why I wanted to share a few thoughts on them. But, what if you didn't know there was a plan for your life? What if you don't know there's a plan for your life? What if you'd never been involved in that stuff? What if all the stuff that you've been through on this bumpy road, this difficult bit that you've been going through, having perseverance, developing character, being reformed, being reshaped, having the stuff knocked off you that you didn't, all that stuff. What if you didn't know there was a reason for that? What if you just end up really grumpy and angry and lost? What if you didn't know this stuff that's in the scriptures and in the Bible or in the church like you've got here? And what if you've been disappointed in other people, disappointed in life, and I think worst of all, completely disappointed in yourself? And some of you will be in that situation now, some of you have been in it, and it's not a good place to be. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these scriptures. Thank you that they are encouraging, they are persuasive, they are tough, and they're difficult to understand at times. And I pray, Lord, in this short time together that you would reveal yourself individually and collectively to us as we gather to share you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure, obviously, where you are with your faith. You may be fully signed up. You may be on the outskirts of it. You may be thinking about it. You may be thinking, what on earth did I do coming here this morning? What's happening? The coffee was good, but I'm really desperately trying to get out now, and I can't because people might be looking at me. So I'm not sure where you are with your faith. I was introduced to, to Christ, to the Christian faith, quite late on in life. 40 years of age. Before that, I had no plan. Absolutely no understanding of of these buildings, this stuff, Christ, Jesus, God, any of that stuff. I was an atheist, a complete non-believer. And some of the stuff I went through, which I'll share bits with you, a lot of it was my fault, my stupidity, my arrogance, me thinking I'm the one that knows the best, I can sort everything out. So a lot of it was my fault, absolutely, but... Some of it wasn't my fault. It was circumstances and situations that I happened to be in. Because I had no one around me. I had no church to go to. I had no group of friends or fellowship. I had no amazing pastors like these two, Alex and Liz, to to talk to me and say, come on, let's have a cup of coffee. Don't worry about it. Let's have a chat. No fellowship or anything like that at all. And in my arrogance and in my youth, it was my plan, my struggle, I'll sort it out, and I know the best of everything, so I'll be okay. Growing up as a kid, when I look back, I realize I was caught in this sort of hopeless situation. Why? I don't know, lots of reasons, um, really. You can't really choose some of the things that happen to you in life. Some you can, some you can't. You can't choose your parents, the area you're born in, the schooling, the attitude, the colour, whether you're rich or you're poor, your family background. But most of all, for me, there was a complete absence of God. I think possibly before my mother, who came to Christ just before she died, basically, I'm possibly the only Christian in the Cowley family. It just goes all the way back where, the, where there's nothing. So no understanding of that at all. So both my parents were, I think I'd say, functioning alcoholics. So you have no idea. Most of my family are alcoholics, past family. So, so no idea what I was going to get on a daily basis. Some days were brilliant, some days weren't so good. They were atheists, so, so no God at all in their lives. And both really um, dysfunctional when I, I look back. That's the first mention ever that Alex just did of this book that's coming out. It's taken four years. And, and it's been a really painful journey because what you have to do when you're writing that stuff is go over it day after day after day after day. And that can be really painful. And you just realize how screwed up my parents were and the effect that that has on future generations. So for my childhood, no mole or, or godly guidance uh, whatsoever. My school I went to in Manchester, the north of Manchester. had no religious teaching at all. I don't remember doing any RE classes. I never grew up with friends of my age, my parents being what they were. It was a complete adult environment. So so I never had kids of my age. It was always smoking, drinking, parties, that sort of thing. And, And I was the kid in the house in the middle of all that sort of stuff. So no God, no plan, no wise counsel. And for me, it ended up with no hope. I've called this talk or these thoughts hope out of despair because there is hope but someone has to guide you towards it and then you have to surrender to start to embrace it. So if you end up in that situation what do you do when no one tells you about this stuff? Well if you're anything like me you make your own plan up because you've got to. You've got to survive you've got to get on with it and you've got to work it out. My plan started when I was 15, first of all, I was expelled from school for, for truancy because I went to this school in Manchester, a comprehensive school, and it was horrendous. And I was a small, blonde, blue-eyed kid, and I was bullied. If anyone in here has been bullied, you know what that's like. It was awful. So I ran away every single day. The same time that sort of happened, I got into an argument with my mum and dad. My father went to hit my mother and I stood in the gap and I got the the clout that my mother was going to get, big argument, and my father said, I want you out. And again, in my arrogance and in my youth, I thought, right, I'm off. I ran upstairs, grabbed the bag, threw some stuff in it, ran out the door, slammed it behind me, and about 10 meters up the road, I thought, I have no idea where I'm going. I've got no money, no plan, nowhere to sleep. So I was homeless for a while, And I lived on the streets in Manchester. I got involved with a gang. I won't bore you with it all. It was the sort of um, the scooter era with the skinheads and all that sort of stuff. I'm showing my age now. But I got involved in that group. And what happened is one of the leaders of this group really sort of took a liking to me. And I moved into a squat in, in a place called Stockport. An empty house that they'd taken over. And goodness me, all sorts of stuff were happening in that house. People coming and going. But I was looked after in a very dysfunctional way, but I was looked after. I was fed and I was watered. At 17, or that sort of um, that age, I got involved in crime with this, this group, this house, this gang, whatever. And first of all, it started off with petty theft, nicking from, from houses and then shops and then warehouses and then factories, and I was never very good at it. I was constantly caught. I was the bloke with the leg hanging out the window that the copper always seemed to grab so it was always me that got caught that led to a relationship with the police bound over to keep the peace, fines, probation, magistrates court I didn't do any of that stuff I didn't pay attention to it and I remember standing in front of a magistrates court in Manchester and a senior magistrate saying to me Cowley you are not listening or paying any attention to what we're trying to do with you you my son are going to prison and I went to a prison called Wisley uh, just outside Manchester and it was an awful place and when I came out of there, I wanted to go home. I wanted to be back with my mum and dad, um, but they'd divorced and separated, so I was on my own again. Long story short, at 21, I um, I joined the army. I loved it. I had to uh, marry my girlfriend at the time. Uh, because you can't take your girlfriend with you, so I got married, that that was it. I found a church with a pointy roof and a vicar with a collar, and I just said, look, next Sunday you need to marry me and this woman because I'm in the army and I get more money and I get a house, so can we do that? You can imagine that vicar um, after my conversation with him. We got married, I got posted to to Germany. Uh, It was great. Uh, Within a year really. I had a son. My son was born Clinton. That was fantastic. Uh, The marriage wasn't going really well. I thought, if we have a child, that'll glue it all together and it'll be fantastic. That didn't happen at all. It just kind of made it worse because I couldn't handle the responsibility of of a son and trying to be a faithful husband. I had absolutely no model how you do that with my parents. Nobody taught me anything about that stuff. So, at 26 or 24, I had a divorce. I left my wife, my child sent him back, as always. I ran away from my responsibilities. I couldn't do it. I was on my own for a while in the army. I quite liked it, then I didn't like it, then I got married again at 26. That marriage lasted about 18 months, nearly two years, then another divorce, on my own again. And that was my plan. That was my sort of great idea that I can look after myself, and I won't share everything with you, but that was it. It was a total disaster. I'd given up trying to have relationships with with anyone, really, except myself. You might feel something like that. I just couldn't be responsible for anyone or anything. And in Proverbs 13, verse 12 in the Bible, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I never knew what that meant. But actually, I was really sick. Why? I had no hope. No one had any hope in me. I had no hope in anyone else. And there was no hope that I was going to change. And if you're like that, it makes you sick. By was talking about spiritually sick. And looking back, I realized that everything in my life was controlled by me. I was the judge and jury of everything I did or went and did. It was just all related around me. And I'd get out of these situations by saying to myself, the next stuff I get into, it's going to be better. I tell you what, when I get expelled from school, now I'm going to be able to, to be better. It will start again. I tell you what, when I get the next job, then it will change. I tell you what, when I leave this job, and I join the army, that's when it's all going to be brilliant. No, I tell you what, when I get married, that'll be better. No, no, no. Once I get this divorce out of the way, then I'll be able to sort myself out. No, now, a new marriage, now it's going to be brilliant. Once this divorce gets out of the way, I'll be fine. When I leave the army, it's all going to be different. That's when it's going to change. You know what? It never got any better. I just moved the problem on all the time. You know why? Because I was the problem. So I just kept moving it into different situations. My life was just full of other stuff, it was all my plan. It was like a disaster zone all the time. I'd move into one area, completely mess it up, then move into the next area. So let me share three quick thoughts with you about being in despair. It doesn't have to be like my life. But like being in despair and seeing how you can get out of it. Because when you're in that hopeless situation, and I don't know, you might, you might feel like you're, you're in it now... You can't really see straight, if you're me anyway. You you can't see past the first row of chairs because it's so overwhelming and all-consuming that you're just in this mess. But once you sort yourself out or you start on that road and you move into God's plan, you can start to get well. And what's even better you can start to pass that experience on to other people, and then you start to help them. There's a saying that if you're in a tricky situation, find something bigger than you and focus on that, and that will take you out of the stuff that you're in. Easier said than done. Then your life can be like it's described in Isaiah 58, in the Old Testament, 58, 11. It says, then your life will be like a well-watered garden like a spring whose waters never fail. Oh my goodness. Is that what I want for my life? I want it to be like a world water garden instead of this desert I had that was arid and dry and rocks and hot and awful and just difficult. I want it to be that picture of a world water garden. First point, Jeremiah 29, that first scripture, uh, verse 11. Remember that God has a plan for you whether you know him or not, but it might not be your plan that's the tricky bit I have a plan for you not your plan maybe and sometimes I think God allows discouragement frustration and disappointment to to enter our lives why I think just me so he can get our attention because sometimes we're so busy or we're so stuck in the stuff that's difficult or stuff that's good we forget him And he's always there, like Alex said, always there, but he needs inviting in. And sometimes, only when it's difficult, when things are darkest, when there seems no hope, when things look so hopeless, that's when God sometimes is found in the middle of that. And I'm sure you've heard testimonies here, stuff on Alpha that people usually say, and then I met the Lord. Sometimes God allows discouragement. We're allowed to get into difficult situations. That's way above my pay grade, but it's just so he can get our attention. I know it is because he did it with me. And then we can learn to have faith, to work in his power, to see that God can change things if we allow him to. How? Do you know what? Now I don't care. I'm not interested how he changes things. I just know he changes things or I wouldn't be stood here and those two wouldn't be running these churches. I know he does that stuff. But sometimes God can come incognito, he's crafty, he's sneaky at times, he can come in a disguise that you don't recognize him, so you have to be open, you have to be aware and you have to remain, more importantly, hopeful that God will speak to you. I know he's speaking to you, I'm fumbling around here but that's not important, God will speak to you in different things that are coming in your heart and in your mind now. That's because he wants your attention. That's because he loves you more than anything. Whether you came here for a baptism and you're dying to get out, he still loves you. It doesn't matter. I spent in my 17 years in the military. And my first 12 years were in the um, Royal Artillery, different regiments. And then after that I transferred. I wanted to transfer into the Army Physical Training Corps to become a PE teacher. So I transferred in, it's a hard course, it takes a year. 118 of us started on selection, and 18 got through in the end. One person died, and two people ended up in a wheelchair. It's a tough course, it's not the hardest in the army, but it's a pretty hard course. And I was so excited that I got in, and I got selected, and I got a badge on my chest with cross swords, and it's an elite group, and it was fantastic. During that year, you get allocated a senior instructor who goes with you through the year if you make the three different stages. Advanced course, then you have a probation period, then you go on to senior probation, then probably if you don't die, you're going to get in. So all the way through the year, you're allocated a senior instructor, and I got allocated this um, sergeant major, and he was a complete nightmare. He was about this big. He was um, a lightweight army boxing champion. He was a squash champion. He was a swim... In other words, he was champion of everything, so I couldn't get away from him. Because in the PT Corps, you have to do all the sports you could possibly think of. Not be brilliant at them, but you have to be able to instruct them. So every time we had swimming, it was him. Squash, it was him. Tennis, it was him. Judo, it was him. Everything. Gymnastics, it was him. And I hated him. Absolutely hated him. There's a friend of mine, in fact, I was speaking to him this morning um, on the phone. And... uh, his name was Slats and he was, in the, he was in the parachute regiment. I was in the artillery when we transferred to try and get him on this course. We wanted to seriously do him some harm. Sorry, Lord. I mean, we really wanted to put him out of business. He was a sort of character that when you do a test, you go up to him and you say, Sergeant Major, is that all right? Can I?" Then you move off and you get a tick and you do something else. He would go, no, do it again when there was absolutely nothing wrong with it, just to make you go through it again. So you can see we wanted to sort of hurt him. And we did plan something, but we never went through with it. But anyway, you might have to read the book to find out about that. And what happened is um, I got into the PT Corps. I then got selected to go to um, the 3rd Battalion Royal Green Jackets, an infantry regiment, loved it, spent four years with them. When I left the PT school, it was the most exciting thing. One, because I was badged. had this badge. Secondly, I never had to see that man again in my life. So he left. He got posted to to Hong Kong. I did my four years. I left the army. And uh, I moved in with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And uh, I I worked in the fitness industry. I became a personal trainer. I was doing all right. It was quite fun. One morning, I went to collect the bills and, and all the stuff that comes through the letterbox. And I got a postcard. And it was a really weird postcard. It was a biblical scene on the front. It was loads of sheep. And there was a shepherd. And he had one of those sticks. he had his foot on a rock. And round two of the sheep, someone had put a circle with a pen and written you and me. I thought, well, I won't tell you what I thought. But I thought, that's an interesting postcard. I turned it over. And it said on the back, I've become a Christian. You need to marry that woman you're living with. Jesus loves you. Come and see me. I mean, who gets postcards like that ever? And at the bottom, when I saw the signature, I'm not joking, it made me sort of shake with fear. Why? It was that lunatic sergeant major. And I thought, two things in my head, I thought, goodness me, not only is he a psychopath in uniform, he's now become one of those weird, odd Christians, and thirdly, he knows where I live, So I threw the card on the side. And Amanda said to me a couple of days later, are you going to do anything about that card? I said, no, not at all. He's a lunatic. I hated him. I never want to see him again in my life. And then I thought, maybe the macho stuff got a bit over me. And I thought, do you know what? I am going to see him. I'm out the army. He's in Aldershot. He's got no power over me. I'm bigger than him anyway. Bring it on. So I went down to Aldershot and I spent three days with him. And during those three days... He told me he had this experience in Hong Kong and met the Lord, become a Christian. Yeah, all right, brilliant. I knew this guy. You know, this this was a, a psycho in green uniform. And now he's telling me about the Bible. Now he's saying God has a good and perfect plan for you. Yeah, of course he does. And all the stuff you've been through, Paul, the difficult stuff, he's going to make good of that. Yeah, of course he is. Anyway, he never stopped talking about the Bible and how God loved me. And all the stuff I've been through could be different. And we'd go for a run, we'd have a few beers together, we'd chat, then he'd talk more about the Bible. But what was interesting, I couldn't quite get the difference between this character who I knew was very punchy, would punch you in seconds, and then get you to do something else. And these scriptures were coming out. And now I know the scriptures were coming out and wrapping themselves around my heart and I didn't know. Big tough X sergeant in the army and what they were doing they were starting to feed in hope hope that I might be different hope that I could possibly be a good father hope that I might get my son back who I left when he was three hope that I might be able to to be a respectable decent character hope they all started to and that really was difficult on the last night when I was leaving the night before I was leaving in the morning he walked me to my room in the science mess and um and he said to me um I'll see you in the morning for breakfast, and then I'll give you a lift to the station. I said, great. And as I went in my room, he gave me a piece of paper. I said, what's that? He said, I'll just read it later. Put it in my pocket, and I started getting ready for bed. When I opened the paper, it was a tract. I didn't know what that was at the time, but it was scriptures. And he'd, he'd put a sort of staple in one, and he'd highlighted a load in yellow, and one in sort of blue with markers on it, so I had to read it. And it was a piece of scripture in Matthew 22, verse 13. You probably know it, you probably don't. But it says this. The king said to his servants, take that man and bind him hand and foot and throw him into the darkness where there will be a great deal of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Who the heck gives that scripture? (laughs) Who gives that to anybody? So I tried to get to sleep and all I could think of is my hands being tied, my feet being tied, and someone lobbing me into an alley where there's all wailing and screaming and the teeth all around me. I had a horrible night. (laughs) During the night, I got up and I was so scared on my own in this room, sweating. I thought, I don't know what to do. I kept having all these images around my head of horrible stuff. And I dropped to my knees and I thought, what do those weird people do? They kind of go like this. So I got like that and I said, I don't want the gnashing of teeth and I tried to sleep. Got up in the morning, went into the science mess at the, the restaurant. He was there dressed in all his kit, his uniform and everything. I walked up to him. He didn't even look up. He's eating his bacon and eggs. And he said to me, um, how did you sleep? Again, I won't tell you everything I said to him. I said I didn't sleep very well with the things and everything and the binds and the feet and didn't look up at me. He said, what did you do? I said, I think I prayed and asked God to take away the gnashing of teeth. Then he looked up and said, Welcome to the kingdom of God. You're now a Christian. That is not the way to bring someone into church and a life with Christ. There's a lot more lovely scriptures all over the place. How God loves us. He cares for us. He's got a good heart. He's Gnashing of teeth. But you know what? It got my attention. Why? Because God knows I knew Eric. God knows what Eric had been through. God knows he's a man I could relate to. And it got my attention. And that crazy, probably psychotic, some major who had this encounter with God was the only person in nearly 40 years to tell me about Jesus. You might think that's odd. I'm telling you, nobody told me about Jesus. And that man, who is now my dear brother, as you can imagine, and works for me, yes, (laughs) is the only person that told me about Christ, that completely changed my life. How does that happen? Don't care. Not interested. I just know he does. It's about faith. And with Eric's help, I prayed that prayer, and at that moment, I met with God. And as I said, probably a shock for both of us. I didn't think God wanted people like me. And you're probably sitting here thinking, yeah, nice people, but, but, but not me. Second point. It's probably been very bumpy, the journey that you've been on. That's what that scripture says in Romans. So don't let your past dictate your future. All the stuff that you've been through or the stuff that's happened to you, don't let that affect what's coming. Because what's coming can be better if you allow it to be. For most of my life, I never really trusted anybody. I never let anyone close for obvious reasons. And most of the trust and the hope was knocked out of me as a kid for various reasons. I realized quite late in life that if I wanted to have these normal relationships with people and be this person that I had this image of trying to be, then it was me that had to change, not them. Arrogantly, I would think, you're all wrong. You need to sort yourselves out and get like I am, and then we'll be all right together. It doesn't work like that. And that was very difficult to me. And sometimes we get stuck looking through life Through other people's lenses or or their glasses, in a way, as an analogy. Sometimes it's our parents, friends, mentors, family members, work colleagues, school, university, society, or even this generation. And what? If we're not careful, we end up looking at life the way they do. And we're meant to be individuals to look at life. And if we're not careful, we can end up having their cynicism, their anger, their viewpoints, their preconceived ideas on life. I had no God in my life because my dad had no God in His life. And my father probably had no God in his life because his grandfather had no God in his life. I became a bigot and a racist and all that sort of stuff. Why? Because my father was. So I looked at life with the only tool that I had was my father. Now, if those lenses are good and healthy, then that's a real bonus. But if they're dysfunctional, like mine were, it can be really dangerous and it can get you stuck. And until Eric introduced me to Christ on that day in the science mess, I looked at life through my father's lenses and the other people that I was involved in. And if that's you, then you need to consider that, your view on life. Third and final point is, um, remember that we are just ordinary people that God makes into extraordinary people. Look at these two here. Alex and Liz, as I look at them, I knew them when they were younger, if they can be any younger, when they were younger. And I knew them at HDB. And I would never have thought they would be running three churches here with don't know how many more churches are going to come on board and how much influence is going to happen and how many people are going to come to Christ and how many lives are going to be changed. Ordinary people that God makes extraordinary. And that's you. If no one's told you before, you are special. There is no one like you. There is no DNA like you. There's never been anyone like you. There never will be anyone like you. And the plans that God has for you are plans for you. And if you don't do them, the visions and the dreams in your heart that you've probably pushed down like I did for 40 years because I was scared, and then someone comes along like this crazy, psychopathic sort of Christian in my life and opens a box and says, come on! Of course you can be a good dad. You'd make a brilliant man. You'd make a brilliant father. Come and you just never had the tools. You can go into prison again, not in your life. Of course you can. Look at your experience. You're an ex-offender. Why don't you work with ex-offenders? Get into, don't want any of it. The stuff that I've been involved in with so many better people than me in these ministries, it's just that God inspired me all the time to get out of my sort of little box and be brave. And that's what he wants to do with you. And some of you are already doing that. But don't let the world push you down. We have a massive God. Anything that you throw at him, I promise you, he can handle. Any prayer that you've got is not too big for him. Any difficult situation that you are in, he can handle and sort out. How? Not interested. Don't care. I just know he can And that's the faith that he wants you to have. Maybe to get involved in these ministries. Maybe to help with the prison work like you already are doing. Maybe bring some men and women in here off the streets. The the stuff that Liz is doing with with the the women. All that stuff is you. They can't do it. They can instigate it and pray and God could give them visions. Then they come to you and go, and if you don't go, do you know what? I'm going to have a crack at that. That's all you need to say. And you know what? You have no idea what happens. No idea what happens. God then starts to install you. Let me finish with one story. You've all seen Lemmy's. You know, you know the, the, the book, the film, the thing. I'm actually very proud. I read the book. It's that thick. It took me six months to read it. But I read the book, and there was one thing. There's lots of things in that book, but it's um, Valjean, the ex-offender who gets put in prison, hard labor, for stealing a loaf, 17 years, and then tries to escape and gets more. Anyway, you know the story. A bishop takes him in. A pastor takes him in. He's homeless, brings him in. The man can't cope with the generosity and the love that this church man is throwing on him. He can't cope with it. He's overwhelming, feeding him in front of the fire, giving him a nice bed, sheets, clean, everything. can't cope with being loved. That's our trouble sometimes. And what happens is, he steals everything. And he nicks loads of things and runs off in the middle of the night. Can't cope. And then the police find him. Police bring him back to the bishop, throw him on the floor and say, Bishop, we found this man with this bag of silver, stolen from your vicarage. And the bishop goes, no, 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 Valjean, you forgot the best things. You forgot the very expensive candlesticks. And he goes and gets the candlesticks off the altar and gives them to Valjean and says to the police, go away. I gave him all my silver. I gave him all my possessions and my wealth. And I want to give him these two things that he forgot as well. The police go. Valjean can't cope. Do you know what? That's what it's like with God sometimes. He so wants to love us and bless us that we can't cope with that much love coming on us. And the bishop puts his hand on him and says, Tonight, Valjean, I have prayed for you. That no more darkness will enter your soul, and from now on, you will be a good man. And if you listen and you read the book or see the film, he goes on to do extraordinary things with the money from the silver. You have no idea what God has in store for you. I'm going to hand you back over to your amazing pastors, but I want to pray for you. So maybe you can close your eyes so I can't see you staring at me. You can bow your head because you make me nervous. And then I want to pray. Father, thank you so much for these scriptures. Lord, thank you so much that sometimes you get our attention in various ways that we don't understand. I pray, Lord, that you would instill in every single person here that you firstly love them, that you have a good and perfect plan for them, that you want them to prosper. And Lord, thirdly, I pray but those visions and dreams that they've buried so down, those exciting ideas, that you release them now in prayer and in worship. And Father, we love you. Thank you that you died for us. And Lord, that you have a plan for the rest of our lives.